Good afternoon and welcome to the 82nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, my guest is Scott Miles. He's the research scientist in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington and director of the Impact 360 Alliance Initiative. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. I'd like to also welcome new viewers and listeners to COVID Calls. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. If you're wondering what COVID Calls is all about, be sure to check out our introductory episode on Podbean. It's also linked on the Facebook page. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I'd also like to give a special shout out to all of my colleagues who are participating this week in the 45th Natural Hazards Workshop. Please check it out and follow them using hashtag HazWS, that's H-A-Z-W-S on Twitter. As of today, July 14th, 2020, there are 13,177,855 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 12,988,624 cases yesterday. Of those, 3,397,069 are in the United States. That's up from 3,336,154 cases reported yesterday. There are now a total of 136,117 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 135,425 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Texas first coronavirus-related death was a 97-year-old Bay City funeral home director, the author St. John Barnett Smith. This was published March 17th in the Houston Chronicle. Eddie F. Roberts spent decades burying Matagorda County residents, one of just a few morticians in the rural county in southeast Texas. No more. The 97-year-old Bay City resident died in March, the first Texan to succumb to COVID-19, the disease that has swept across the globe, sickened millions, and brought the global economy to a virtual standstill. In Bay City, where his mortuary has served local families for the past century, the news was a sharp reminder that no area, no matter how removed, is immune from the pandemic's reach. This has hit home said Matagorda County Judge Nate McDonald. We're socially distanced. We felt safe until that point. First case emerged after a 60-year-old woman tested positive for the illness. Then a 97-year-old man, later identified as Roberts by employees of his funeral home, went to the hospital for pneumonia-like symptoms, according to Aaron Fox, spokesman for the Matagorda Regional Medical Center. Hospital staff didn't initially test Roberts for coronavirus because of strict government protocols that required patients to show they had traveled or had contact with someone who traveled. 
Fox said. After that criteria loosened, the mortician was tested, Fox said. It's not clear who contracted the illness first, he said, adding that officials believe the two cases were linked and the result of community spread. Like anywhere else in rural Texas, a lot of people are putting their backs into the response, said Mike Riddell, editor of the Bay City Sentinel, one of the two newspapers that serve the city. The speed with which the pandemic had hit this small southeast Texas county had still come as a surprise, he said. A week ago, and this was reported in March, they were planning the pandemic response, Riddell said. You don't think of it actually striking. Now we're in the midst of it. As the Duncan Roberts funeral home, the doors were locked, adorned with violet ribbons. Roberts had spent decades running the funeral parlor, which was established in 1920. An arsonist destroyed the building in 1992, but Roberts rebuilt on the same site, neighbors said. The undertaker married Faye Roberts, a teacher with Bay City ISD. The couple celebrated their 50th anniversary in Florida in 2001, according to a story in the Victoria Advocate. Faye Roberts died in 2016 at the age of 88, according to her obituary. Residents described Roberts as a fixture of the community, a man who helped a lot of families in their most challenging moments. Now he was gone at a hard moment for the community that seemed protected from troubles sweeping more populous areas. This popped up on us overnight, said Larry Fields, a neighbor. They were saying it was nowhere on the coastline. Two days later, someone caught it. And then two days after that, someone died. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today, and I'm really excited to bring Scott Miles on. Really eager to speak with Scott over these past few months. Really glad to get him on today. Let me introduce him. Scott Miles is a disaster scientist and consultant with expertise in disaster risk reduction, long-term recovery, community resilience, reconnaissance, simulation modeling, information systems, and human-centered design. He is a senior research scientist in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington. He is also director of the Impact 360 Alliance Initiative, which is a collaborative with the University of Washington, the University of Oklahoma, and Impact WX. Scott was previously an associate professor at Western Washington University, where he co-founded the Resilience Institute and Huxley College's Disaster Risk Reduction Minor. He has degrees in civil engineering, geographic information science, and human geography. Scott Miles, welcome to COVID Calls. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Excited. By the way, thank you for doing this. You are absolutely tireless, and I want you to know that the community really appreciates the work you've put into COVID Calls. That means a lot to me. Thank you for saying that. This 5 o'clock hour has been... um, I guess selfishly, I'll say it's been a, an hour I look forward to every every day, and I really look forward to to our conversation. I want to remind people you can get your questions in for Scott Miles. Um, just put them right into the YouTube live chat, or you can also email me directly. Some people do like to do that, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can just put them up on Twitter and just um, be sure to tag at US of disaster. So, um, Scott, I'd like to start the way I've been starting these and just find out where you're calling from. And it's, I think, a new location for you and and find out what the COVID-19 situation is there. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about 
if there is some um, social justice issues going on there, what you're seeing there with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I moved to College Station, Texas uh, three weeks ago. For those that know me, I'm still employed by University of Washington. Uh, my wife is pursuing a veterinary radiology residency, and she starts tomorrow. That's what got us to College Station. We were in Houston the last year um, for her internship. So, like, what I can tell you about College Station, pretty uh, fresh to Brazos County, uh, but I can speak to it a little bit and speak to, to Houston quite a bit more. I mean, I think... From just an anecdotal perspective, when we first started looking for our apartment and first got the keys to the apartment, we, we were the only people wearing masks as we were walking around. And that was kind of like, you know, that that cognitive dissonance is like, we want to fit in. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we want to do what we felt was right. And, uh, you know, when the city of Bryan, city of College Station, well, what was it? San Antonio figured out how to get through the loophole. If you have businesses uh, require masks, then apparently that that is okay. That uh, for the governor uh, and and Brian and College Station did follow suit after San Antonio did that, and we were we were certainly wondering, you know, is the is the trend going to continue where we'll be the only ones wearing the mask? And I actually really happy to report that it's pretty rare that you see anyone not wearing a mask around here. So it's um, the expectation I had is that we would have a little bit of that culture clash, and I'm sure it's happening. And uh, if you know the area where we're living, like in the Northgate area, so maybe that's a little bit different than on the uh, like unincorporated areas. But really happy with how people have uh, responded to the new ordinances and Bryan and College Station. Um, Houston, of course, is a whole nother um thing like uh, i moved up here before Kristen did and it's kind of like oh she got out just in time and it, it it's kind of a sad story right because it, it was a bit of a success story uh before the state was opened up so quickly right i mean like lena hidalgo 29 year old executive or judge i can't i can't uh can't keep that in my my head for texas you know, she already dealt with Harvey. She dealt with a lot of, like, uh, explosions. She did it in a very graceful way. You have Amir Shah, who's, like, one of the more famous public health officials, particularly with respect to the disasters. And, like, from my just reading the news perspective, I thought they were doing a great job. And they, they clearly had a plan which, of course, had to change every day as situations changed. But then, you know, they got a little handcuffed. And that's where the, the story becomes a little bit of a, a tragedy, right? That you have have these officials, this executive that did have a plan, whether or not it wor would have worked, who knows, but it was working at that point, and then just being handcuffed, and then not having the tools now at their disposal uh, to continue to work on it. And it's kind of like the cat's a bit out of the bag. So so we'll, we'll see what happens. And the... the Thanks for that that update. And even thinking about that sort of importance of the distance between Houston and College Station, it's important. And I suppose we'll talk a bit later about these issues that come up perennially, I guess, between, you know, these are federalism issues. Uh, mm -hmm. And I talked to Don Kettle a few months 
ago about these. And we often think about federal state issues. Maybe we don't talk enough about sort of within states, um, sort of like state to county level kind of issues. Let me also get an update from you. I know you're, you're recently arrived on the campus, but what's happening in College Station on the social justice front? Uh, yeah, I wish I wish I could report more. Uh, I'm I'm proud to say that I've figured out what the local newspaper is, and like I told you in the in the green room, I'm excited that there is a local newspaper uh, in College Station. So you know, I can only really uh, say that I don't know what happened uh, soon after the George Floyd murder, but I do know that on campus, Texas A&M University campus, there are there are students. Uh, I think daily protesting uh, a particular statue who I've uh, forgotten who it is and I think wanting to, to tear it down. So I think, you know, within the city, within the county, it's not super noticeable yeah. for me right now. But I, I do know that there's uh, conversations and action, action on campus. So let's um, start so many issues to talk about with you, but let's start with Impact 360. Alliance is something I know a little bit about. I was fortunate enough to be part of the discussions that helped to form it, and I'm just thrilled with what you've you've done with it and, and need to, an update, and I'm glad that the rest of the community can get an update from you at this time. So what is it? What are you up to with it? Yeah, you should tell me when it started. I mean, uh, the idea happened, uh, I think it kind of came from multiple different different directions, but just so folks know it, like far preceded my involvement by what, seven, <laughs> five years, four years. It was, uh, I think the idea was kind of came out or at least was published in this uh, living with extreme weather report. And this idea of needing to foster integrative approaches between different academic disciplines, but then obviously with the goal to um, get research into practice or research into operations, so in, involving um, practitioners as well. And a, a large group of you came together, put together a, a working paper with kind of the, the large concepts and what ultimately was the, the charter that led to the steering committee that you were on that found the director, who was me. Uh, and what it is right now is a little confusing for, for folks, but we'll, we'll take the confusion out hopefully in six to nine months, so that um, it, it's an initiative of the three organizations you talked about, University of Washington, University of Oklahoma, and Impact uh, WX. We are not an independent organization right now. However, we have incorporated a business in, in Delaware and have submitted the paperwork to the IRS to get the tax-exempt uh, recognition, 501c3. So the idea is right now we have four staff at University of Washington working on the Impact 360 uh, work. And then whenever we get that recognition from the IRS, we are going to transition to being an independent nonprofit organization. So that's the technical details because people always kind of ask me like, oh, have you left University of Washington or, or things like that. So this is technical de details. In terms of like, what we do, who we are. So we're, we're developing process tools for researchers and practitioners to uh, strengthen their connections with each other, to integrate their work, their approaches, and ultimately inclusively solve problems together to reduce the impacts of natural hazards and disaster risk. And so uh, we do a lot of things. We're uh, Now we're a member-driven organization. We kind of launched that 
um, about three months ago. So if you haven't joined Impact 360, please do. Uh, you can go to our website, impact360alliance.org. And so we offer a lot of member services. We can help you um, find researchers and practitioners to put together uh, teams for projects. We offer a lot of uh, planning services to help you scope how you would do kind of that integrative or convergence work, um, whether it's in an NSF proposal uh, or some kind of in internal initiative. And then we also offer facilitation, coaching, and uh, training services. So we are trying to develop a, a business model where we have a portion of um, our financial sustainability funded by uh, income generation, so the service-based stuff, just so we have a little bit of uh, diversity. So hopefully we'll, we'll have some financial sustainability mm -hmm. going forward. This is something you and I have talked a lot about over the years, and I, I know it's something that, you know, the hazards meeting is happening right now. I'm sure it's this discussions, even though we're doing it virtually in the virtual hall, hallways, people are having this discussion. How do we get what's sometimes quite esoteric research, very empirical, um, into formats that we can then um, push out into policy avenues, but also into the hands of of practitioners and and it's often spoken of in a frictionless way you know just we have these great ideas put them out there and the world's going to pick them up we've got a lot of experience with this i know it's what impact 360 partially is about hmm. um what have you learned in doing this job uh in in this time about challenges with that maybe things you hadn't thought of or you didn't realize were going to be as hard to tackle as they are oh wow. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, I'll, I'll say when when I was appointed director, I had around 100 conversations with academics and, and practitioners and different types of agencies and private sector. And it's funny, what you hear from people in these private conversations are a little bit different than when you hear with people sitting on a dais and talking in a panel or a Q&A mm -hmm. like that. Um, and that really influenced how we started scoping what Impact 360 is going to do versus like what was in that original charter document, which was, was vast. And one of the big insights was that there really was a focus on and the need for problem solving more so than communication, right? So this idea that, um, yeah, it'd be great to learn this or that, and we do have questions, and we can have difficulty finding that answer because there's the paywalls, and we can't uh, access journal articles, and even if we could, we can't understand them. But what we would really hear from practitioners, I should say, uh, is they actually wanted collaborators to work together to solve problems, whether it is a small problem or a big problem, the, the way that we heard they really wanted was to, to interact with those folks, right? So uh, the other thing that I learned was that that cultural gap in many instances is as bad or worse uh, than you do hear about the, <laughs> the adjectives that people used about both 
actual people and kind of like archetypal like <laughs> archetype people uh sometimes surprised me and so that was where we're like okay mm. we want to focus on problem solving and we really want to focus on building capacity for people to work together and so we have this uh framework we call the convergence pyramid this idea it's kind of like the maslow's hierarchy of the kind of capacity building work that we think we as a community need to do and the foundation is connection, right? That we find each other who shares similar problems, expertise, situations. And then you move up to communication, cooperation, coordination, collaboration, and co-creation. And the, the point of all those C's <laughs> in answering your question is communication is not enough. It's not nearly enough. So uh, there, and it's not necessary that you have to learn to communicate to be able to co-create. These are just different levels of commitment, right? So there, there are actually instances where we could co-create together and the knowledge from the different folks in the real or virtual room could be, you know, kind of enacted, activated to understanding the problem, generating solutions without, you know, conveying those facts and figures from one head to another, but there would be other times that we do need to facilitate that communication. And uh, if you're curious about what we've learned about that, I can tell you. But what I, was really important for me is like there's been a big focus on the practitioner side for the problem solving, and to and to have that mm -hmm. be successful, we really need to build capacity for us to do convergent work together. Let me let me stay with this a little bit, and maybe for people who are less familiar with the kinds of problems that practitioners might be bringing to the table, can you uh, paint a picture for me of like something that's that's on your on your agenda? On our agenda, I don't know about on our agenda. I mean, I will tell uh, a little bit of an origin story, and for those that know, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it, so we'll, we'll call this a cartoon of our origin story. Um, you know, but this idea, for example, that researchers are working on uh, weather forecast models and mm. what those models are capable of far exceeds what's available uh, to the general public or to broadcasters, right? And there is this question of how do you get that or when do you get that, like, research into operations, into practice? And so this is something that NOAA has struggled with mightily they're like the only federal agencies that has this idea of readiness levels i don't remember it was on a scale of one to nine but you know after you conduct some research you have to file this report where you describe which readiness level but that still makes it quite difficult especially if you're a social scientist to translate that uh kind of into like a decision of whether this is ready for operations sure. or or practice, so that, that, it's just a, a generic example. I, I actually tried to take out names and, and organizations in there. <laughs> um, I, I would rather not specifically talk about folks that we're setting up work with because I have not asked them if that's if that's okay at this yeah. time. Sure. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about with that, and it's something that I think any of us who are interested in this kind of work find is that the motivations are often disparate. So, you know, if somebody's working in a federal agency or they're working in a county agency and they're working in a municipal office of planning, or maybe they're an academic, 
they might they have they would share if if you put up a sign and say are you interested in driving down disaster deaths they're all going to come to that table mm. but their individual career motivations and how they keep their jobs are are pretty disparate and i can imagine you knew that going into this job but that must be a constant challenge i want to ask you a, a bit about that like how do you find a common currency for people to come together to really give their valuable time to work on on these kinds of issues knowing that for some, it's going to be a, a plan that's going to go before city council, and for others, it's going to be a peer-reviewed paper, and uh, it can't just be one one um, deliverable, can it? Yeah, I mean, there's two two threads that come to mind with that. I mean, like a a common question uh, with Impact 360 and talking about it with others that we get is. Uh, Researchers and practitioners, what do you mean by that? Um, I'm, am I a researcher? Am I a practitioner? I feel like I'm both. Mm. Um, but your list doesn't include yeah. anthropologists. Do you, do you also like support anthropologists? <laughs> so we always get the, the what about the what about, but what about these folks? And our answer usually is yes, in terms of supporting folks, the, the way we talk about it. So we're like a meta organization. We're like the, the BASF for those old enough to know. It's like, we don't do the, do, do the work. We're, we're working to make your work better, right? So we're not so concerned about identifying folks that work on disasters. Y'all self-identify as working on disasters. Uh, and if you're not paid to do it, you know, maybe we'd make a little bit of a judgment of like, are you volunteering a good chunk of your time working on disasters? You know, whether you're a community organizer or something like that. But it's really not our business, Impact 360, of trying to judge uh, whether you are a bona fide disaster professional, whether a researcher um or practitioner. So that's, that's the, the high level thread. The, the lower level thread is, you know, having people come together, uh, a little bit of a broken record, but an important um, one for us is that it's the problems that bring people together, right? So it, it's, we are focused on fostering kind of these problem focused communities, problem-focused team. And so if we're if individuals want to solve a particular problem, we do think they'll either find a way or they'll find someone <laughs> to help them find a way where they can work together. And that's where the motivation is going to come from, right? I mean, a, a cartographer would have never gotten together with a, you know, a database designer had they not had a, a specific problem to bring that together for GIS. That's not quite how the story went. But as, as an example, right, it's got to be problem focused. I see. Well, thank you for that description of what you're doing with the, with the Alliance. And I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Scott Miles. Um, I want to transition over now to talk with you a bit about COVID-19. I follow you on Twitter. I, I, I keep up with your thoughts, at least as they're <laughs> described there. And I know you think a lot about science communication. And I know you think a lot about this community of researchers and the way that they communicate. Um, on Sunday, I had the opportunity to participate in a science communication uh, workshop with, with colleagues um, and Ksenia Chmutna and Jason von Metting. Mm. And it was really wonderful um, set of conversations that we had there was sort of a training um, and there were a hundred people that showed up. I mean, yeah. the interest level is very high. 
I mean, I think we as a community do want to communicate um, and we want to communicate with media. We want to communicate with policymakers. So let me get your sense of it right now. I know you're following things pretty closely. How is the disaster research community broadly defined doing in terms of translating our knowledge hmm. for people in the world, journalists um, who want to know what we can contribute to this COVID-19 discussion? Oh, yeah. I mean, first, just caveat with Impact 360 Alliance, um, you know, we, at the moment, we do have kind of a boundary uh, where pandemic uh, kind of those issues fall outside the scope. And uh, sure. we also don't chime in on, on specific subjects. We're more of a meta process oriented organization. So I am definitely talking as Scott Miles, research scientist okay. at University of Washington. Okay. So they might Good. that as well. Um, the question about how well <laughs> our colleagues are doing at communicating, I'm not even going to touch that, right? I, that's, yeah, we're just too close of community uh, for me to, to say, not to mention, like, I don't have the full picture. This is a very unusual situation where the way we're, like, right. hearing about what each other is doing is through Twitter, right? Where I mean, I'm actually a little anxious about this conversation because I, this is literally going to be the longest conversation <laughs> I've had about this topic. You know, my wife and I talk about it, what's in the news, but it's not this kind of sure. conversation, right? So my sure. awareness sure. is not what it usually would be <laughs> if, if it was like related to, you know, earthquake in Mexico City or something like that. So what I will say is that, hey, I'm like really happy that uh, see so many colleagues willing to communicate, right? That that's not always been the case, and I maybe it's a little generational thing where I think there's more willingness to engage with like media and public platforms, or maybe it just feels like this is this is the time. So that is great, and the, you know the the key to communication is to just start doing it, right? And not worry. It's the that improv principle of just jump right in, right? You're always gonna make mistakes. So you, you might as well get in there, right? If, if if you have that core philosophy of doing it, which again, I'm glad uh, our colleagues, more and more of them do. Um, if I was gonna offer some constructive criticism, I think there has been times where I felt maybe some folks should pass the mic. Um, I will say outside the context of pandemic, just as an example, because uh, I can survive people reacting to this, um, you know, like a, a seismologist. The seismologists, like if people don't know, I come out of the earthquake world. Seismologists are sexy. They may not realize it, but they're the sexy ones, and that's who the media goes and talks to. And they get asked questions that are far outside of seismology. And the best thing to do at that point is to say, that's outside my wheelhouse or offer some high level things. But most importantly, talk about specifically or generally who would be good to talk to, either a recommendation or to actually say that in the interview. And I think there's been times and it's often, you know, between kind of the natural scientists and the social scientists. I think there has been times where I think the mic might could have been Ask. I don't know about you, but I typically do get a lot of interview requests, and I turn down every single one of them this time. Every single one of them, and I pass the mic to someone else because I was like, "This is so far outside what I've worked on, what I've read about, 
who I interact with, you know, like someone asks like, oh, you're a recovery expert. Can you do an interview about what recovery is going to look like related to the pandemic? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you some suggestions of other people to talk to. Uh, I wasn't sure if they should pass the mic or not. But so that would be one piece of constructive criticism. And I think the other is, um, this is hard on Twitter, uh, but in terms of other forms of communication, it, try not to oversimplify, actually. And I think there's times where in the um, effort of trying to communicate what's obviously complex work and nuanced findings, we actually do oversimplify, and that has its own uh, uh, problems, right? And so for me, I would maintain the level of nuance, but try to do your communication in a more kind of empathetic, inclusive, inspiring way so people could connect to it. Let me, on that second point, mm -hmm. um, there have been a couple of uh, issues that have come up I think they always come up, but since this disaster is so ongoing, um, they keep coming up. One has to do with panic, and the other has to do with uh, pro-social activity. Do disasters inspire, um, you know, nature red in tooth and claw, or do disasters inspire pro-social behavior? And those are both issues where I feel like disaster research, particularly social science disaster research, has offered important correctives historically to easy sound bites, easy headlines. Mm -hmm. The world's going to fall apart. Everybody's going to loot their local Walmart. And yet at the same time, empirically, what we're seeing right now is challenging um, right. to those. Panic is not a word that means everything um, in every context and pro-social is also one that if you decontextualize it, it might mean something. But the minute you begin to talk about a global pandemic, what are you talking about with pro-social? I don't know if either one of those resonate with you or if any of the other sort of traditional areas for social science disaster research, you felt like, again, to your point about nuance, don't undersell the complexity of the research. Right. Either one of those stick with yeah, you? Yeah, on the topic of panic, like here's me passing the mic and then adding a, a <laughs> comment on this side because this is like I've read that stuff because of my like uh, educational upbringing around disaster science, but it's not a literature that I'm well versed in. Uh, but my observation has been that, how would you say, uh, more here's anecdotal. So I'll see a lot of disaster researcher. I saw a lot of disaster researchers in the early days when um, starting to get exponential growth in the United States for, for COVID uh, and the whole toilet paper thing, like putting out there, people are not panicking. They don't panic. That's a disaster myth. Okay, it's true in some contexts, but I actually was kind of curious uh, well, I should say, by the way, so Corinthelli defined panic as a asocial thing, right? So there's nothing that says mm -hmm. that in a span of time that someone can't be asocial and prosocial, right? We we are complex beings, and there's a lot of time to switch between asocial and prosocial behavior. And so I was kind of curious, like, what are the psychologists? doing right now on this topic of panic because obviously this is all throughout the the media and they were reacting in a much different way they weren't saying you know this this is a quasi law in our discipline 
people don't panic. They, they were using that as a chance to explain what was going on, kind of questioning whether this is a different situation. And I think as researchers, we do owe it to ourselves to say, hmm, in the past, we have evidence where as this example, but not specifically because there's other examples, uh, panic has not tended to, to occur. But we do need to have that open mind now that was that, was that panic, right? So I don't think that those early days are the time really to be uh, just stating those, those myths. That, and that's just my perspective. And like I said, that's, that's totally an outsider perspective, having done no work on that particular topic. I mean, it's more well, of, I, that, I think that, topic. yeah. It's more of a science communication insight, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, it, it's interesting too, and it's something we talked about in the science communication um, session on Sunday. And to your first point, um, that having some trust between journalists and researchers is important, and it's hard to build that in the moment. This mm. is like something I think it's more, it's kind of a broader challenge for the community. And because um, we worry that if we say, if we get asked a question as a researcher, and I'm going to say it right the first time, and I only get one chance to say it, and that's it. Right. Yeah, right. Um, and, and you're talking about passing the mic. And, and so we worry, like, will the journalists take that? You know, are they give a couple of names? Are they going to actually follow up with, right. those, with those folks? And in and, and the several, I mean, I probably passed the mic nine nine times or so uh, since the growth of, of COVID. And I did follow up with colleagues a couple of times. And, and I will say uh, most of those oh, instances, okay. they did not get contacted. <laughs> so your, mm. your concern is, is, is warranted. Yeah, I, I think it speaks to some work that we still have to do about finding some ways to signal um, to journalists and, and science communicators that we're we're a big tent and there's a lot of people in it. And when we pass the mic, um, and it doesn't have to be so specific, you know, you contact this person, but that there's a sort of broader community of people. Yeah, exactly. To reach. Um, and to your point about the relationship building, I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, so the most of my inquiries are from the Pacific Northwest of, of journalists or at least uh, outlets that I already had a relationship with. Right. So if you do suggest someone else or you do suggest kind of a different discipline, but they are unfamiliar or inaccessible to those reporters, I mean, it's not surprising that they're not going to actually reach out. Remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Scott Miles today, the director of the Impact 360 Alliance and professor at the University of Washington, a real disaster polymath. And I want to um, stick with this discussion a little bit um, about communication, but now talk um, about these dashboards. I know it's something you're following that uh, as well. Have you been surprised um, that this particular disaster, this pandemic, has been represented so um Graphically and interactively, I've never seen anything like this. 
Uh, surprise. So uh, those conversations I was talking about uh, in the early days of me being appointed director to Impact 360, um, you know, the, the and actually this, some folks like Nanya Campbell helped me out with this. Like when we talk to researchers and practitioners, this is a total oversimplification. But like what we often heard was problem uh, problem solving on the practitioner side. Like we want to work together with people to solve particular problems. That's the uh, support we would love from a new organization. And uh, a lot of the the researchers, particularly academics, were like, we want support getting our data out there, web maps, dashboards. It's like (laughs) very, very different needs and kind of assumptions about how that kind of communication uh, and integrative work would happen. So in terms of like that core uh, need and motivation, that's not surprising to me. But in terms of the scale of what you're talking about, no, we've never had anything like that. So the the geovisualization, the data emphasis, the I mean the the big thing, right, is that like modeling, computer modeling, scientific modeling is now like part of the public discourse. Um, the only thing we really have like that, of course, is uh, weather forecasting, and even that. I mean, the, the savvy folks like in the Gulf Coast know they're different, like models and the spaghetti models. But overall, people are not familiar with the models. So, I mean, just that scale of all three, uh, yeah, th- uh, that was that was totally unexpected for me. What are you thinking about with that? I mean, you're. Um, I think the the weather forecast is like an interesting proxy. Like your average. American, let's just take people in the United States, do you think they're better able to make decisions or assess the behavior of the public health officials when they can interact with these models? Or do you think, I guess this this shouldn't be an either or question, but how does that shape the way that they also then think about policy? And I know it's early days um, to think about this, but I feel like we're really at a turning point here um, with this new way of people to gather gather data. I've been thinking a lot about our uh, Cold War antecedents. And you go back in the archives and you look and, you know, civil defense experts had a lot of, they wouldn't have called it a dashboard, but they had a lot of kind of similar data presented to them on a regular basis about sort of like forecasts of what would have happened with nuclear attack in various various cities. I didn't see much indication it helped them make good decisions, but they certainly were informed in this in this way. Maybe it's not a great proxy, but it's been on my mind. What do you think yeah. about this in terms of? I mean, so that that's like that's, that's core of what I do. And since I haven't done anything specifically uh, research-wise on that, it, it's hard for me to say. I mean, my my gut says that they. Uh, like these dashboards and the reference to like the Philadelphia, the IH or IMHE models, like it really hasn't helped the public specifically. Um, you know, the whole flatten the curve thing, while that's not specifically around uh, data or models, I mean, it's kind of around models because that's what we started looking at is like we were visualizing the models as these curves. And it was this amazing achievement from a science communication standpoint that we got the public, the media talking about flatten the curve. And somehow this became part of the vocabulary. That's an amazing achievement. And I think it was totally misguided. (laughs) It's like, Uh so 
We could have just said, like, slow the spread so we don't exceed the capacity of, you know, our responders and, and hospitals. And that would be something that people could operationalize and that they could understand how things might shift and adapt. But with, with the curve thing, it actually, you got them to understand what you meant by flatten the curve. You were able to show your, like, scientific plot and create animations of it, but you actually didn't provide enough context for, like, the general um, mm. decision makers to think further about it, in my opinion. Uh, so that that is an example where, um, you know, those kind of things, those kind of artifacts, dashboards, models, I have a, a view that is not shared by that many folks. Uh, they literally are facilitators. They're like a co-facilitator in the room, like a normal human facilitator. They are there to help uh, facilitate a conversation. That is the only role for those kind of things. And so just like a facilitator has to really think about how you design the process in which you engage people and have that conversation, well, you have to do the same thing with, with data dashboards or simulation models. Uh, otherwise, you know, those that, uh, like the public decision makers, electeds, like you can't have very high expectations for them, right? It's the same as like if you just walk into a conference room with no agenda, uh, no experience facilitating, and then wonder why you know, the meeting turned to chaos. Um, so for me, that solution, like you have to take a much more human-centered approach to designing all those things. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you have to design it from the mm -hmm. from <laughs> first. You have to design it, which I don't think in many cases people were designing. It's kind of like, oh, there's this Esri product. I have some data. Can I get it inside that Esri product publish, right? Uh, there wasn't a lot of design for that. They didn't identify a user. They didn't identify a need. And they didn't iterate to see mm -hmm. if what they put out there would actually meet the need. And they certainly didn't do any kind of rapid testing. And I think a lot of our colleagues are like, well, that's so much work. But this happens very, very rapidly in a lot of industries as it is. So we can learn from them in that case. That's no longer science, right? Getting a dashboard out there, getting a model like a GeoViz interface for a model, that's no longer science in that context, right? Because you're trying to get that out fast and fit for purpose. And there's a lot of other industries we could learn from uh, so that those tools are more effective. So, but I, for me, it's more evaluating the, the 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 folks that put out the dashboards and put out the models uh, than at the moment worrying too much about the public. I think it's great that there is enthusiasm for it. I think it was an achievement that there was an appetite for it. But I think now, on the research side and the practitioner side, mm -hmm. they're often responsible for it. We need to kind of huddle up and say, well, how would we do this in a human-centered, fit-for-purpose way? next time in the next disaster. Right. You know. uh, there's a, a comment here from Amy Slayton, and uh, it's a really nice comment, I think, about this, this idea that the science wars are just below the surface here and these models persuading people except when they don't. Um, <laughs> so they're not, uh, and I really like your, your point about that somehow we quickly got people to rally around this sort of flatten the curve idea mm. but that maybe that was the wrong 
rallying cry. Is it possible, again, to, to change course, though? This is not Hurricane Katrina. This is not, um, or a flash, this is not, you know, turn around, don't drown. I mean, this is a pandemic that's going to be ongoing, at least yeah. until March and probably longer. Can these dashboard creators and the publics that they serve find a place to interact? I mean, for me, that's not the question, right? I mean, the question is starting with what's the need? And then let's design a solution to meet the need. Let's not, uh, you know, the whole hammer nail thing. Like, that's a, like for me, it's like, oh, it's so easy. There's so many people. It's like so easy to create a web map now. It's so easy to publish my data. Uh, that's not really the right question at the moment. But if 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 you establish that need, then, yeah, that's the right question, right? But the first thing is, the first question is, what is the need for who? And so I, I'm not too concerned about whether we can improve, you know, the communication of simulation models, computer models, or improve these data dashboards until you can show me that there is actually a specifically a need that can't be met with something uh, simpler, you know, than, than a... Okay. Yeah. You know, Okay, I'm not going to call you a Luddite, but I do like the direction that you're you're going there and sort of thinking about the deeper sort of social need that we have to talk about before we fall in love with the techno fix. It's just so you know, though. We've had similar discussions. Just so you know, though. Yeah, go ahead. Two bands ago, um, uh, I had a band that I created called King Lud. So go ahead. You, you can call me a Luddite. <laughs> then I'll tell you what it really means. No. <laughs> Yeah, for people who don't, uh, who are not familiar with King Lud, you can easily do a little research and find out what that's about. I want to remind you, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Scott Miles. Please get your questions in using YouTube Live uh, chat or put them up on uh, Twitter if you want to, or you can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. Scott, I want to talk to you about another topic, and... Um, it, it has to do, I guess, with professional boundaries to a certain extent, because I know you think a lot about this. Mm -hmm. And something that has really impressed me, it was much more press about it in the last couple of months and than more recently, but I think we're going to see it again. And it had to do with the impact, potential impact on pollution and climate change with all of the staying home that went on, um, mm -hmm. particularly in other parts of the world and in the Northeast uh, in March and, and April and May. And it, it's, so that those were important, I think, findings, you know, we did bring greenhouse gas emissions went down, um, certainly, but was that remarked upon by emergency managers enough or what are, what were the boundaries, um, of sort of like who should take those as important data points and who, shouldn't in your mind because i saw that being discussed among people who self-identify as like i'm in the climate world but i didn't see that as much in the emergency management world and i'm i'm always thinking about those boundaries and i know some of our colleagues like sam montano for example is thinking about these boundaries right as well what are your thoughts on that many <laughs> people don't know my hobby is cities 
so that's what I spend more time on Twitter uh, talking about. But I, I think there's like two sides to this. this. This idea of air pollution and particularly particulate matter, right, kind of exists in two spaces for us. It's like the kind of the, the impact and recovery space. Right, so which is what you're talking about during social isolation. You saw emissions go down. You're seeing them go back up. I did not see um, many academics, many emergency managers talking about build back better in that context or whatever, whatever bounce back better. Um, yeah, it's fraught with the, the issues that we've identified, but there still is a place for this conversation about how can we recover in a way that that um, maximizes well-being in the long term. And that literally was one of the most central issues um, than on the vulnerability side, right? So... So much of the comorbidities was related to particulate matter, and those comorbidities are driven by racism and white supremacy, right? And we are not talking about, like, those kind of environmental racial justice issues in the emergency management uh, and disaster research space that this provided the opportunity for, right? And so that is why you would think, oh, we're bouncing back better on what? particulate matter because it, it was so um, core to how people were impacted by uh, COVID. Well, where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from the kind of the environmental and land use decisions that are born out of a white supremacist approach to land use siting. Uh, and that was a, was a great opportunity for all of us in our community to like bring it back to that, right? Is this idea of, of bouncing back better. So, yeah, the, the issue of pollution and particulate matter for me, uh, as you can tell, is a, is a bit of a hot button. I don't understand why that you're talking about the boundaries. Why, why is that outside the typical boundary, pollution, particulate matter of emergency management and disasters when we talk about so many other aspects of susceptibility and vulnerability, right? Can I uh, want to go a little bit further with this on you? Do you think it's, so I'm a historian, so I'm always thinking about temporal boundaries. So the way I come at this is that it's like, well, emergency management has staked out for itself a very near-term temporal space, but then, but not always. I mean, right. you know, they have, I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of emergency managers who know disaster history as well as I do and have ideas about possible resilience that go very long in, into the future. So maybe those temporal boundaries aren't, Correct. How are you? This is, I guess, a perennial question, but I want to talk to you about how you see it right now in this moment. What are the factors that are keeping emergency managers or disaster scientists from thinking about things like climate change or as you talked about this particular issue, particulate matter, let's say? Yeah, I mean, so let's let's tackle the climate change thing. It's like talking about climate change or we need to mitigate climate change or we need to think about adapting climate change. Why are we still talking at that level, particularly related to the pandemic? Like let's get down further to understand what's driving that mm. vulnerability and what's driving that for those that uh, were used to talking about the PAR model from Cannon and Wisner and, and Blakey. I mean, that's like the dynamic pressure, right? Well, what's the root cause of that? It's racism. Right. It doesn't take you many steps to get down there. So climate change. Yeah. But that's obfuscating what's really going on in the case of this 
pandemic. And I don't have a full answer for you of, of why we haven't, uh, as a community writ large, gotten down to that level. I think some of it is like for emergency managers. I mean, they got shit that they're dealing with right now. There's an immediacy that makes it very sure. difficult for an under-resourced like, group to be worrying about. For academics and disaster researchers, you know, I was very disappointed to see the um, research agenda that the uh, NARI Converge group put out, where it's over 20 research questions related to the pandemic and not a single one dealt with that dynamic pressure of particulate matter and not a single one had a question related to the, the roots of racism in creating the vulnerability for um, COVID. So I just wonder if we're still not to the point where we can have those conversations, because I think on these issues, it's going to have to be the researchers that do offer some leadership. And for that research agenda, I didn't see it. Hmm. Let's switch to that then, or connect to that. This discussion about anti-racism, of course, has come up in discussion of policing. And if we think about the different offices in City Hall, you know, we have the police commissioner and obviously the reality of what uh, the murder of George Floyd and everything that that connects with the present and the past falls there. Is the emergency manager's office implicated too? Is it implicated? The, the office, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say any particular office is, I think, you know the the general approach, and I know you're asking this question because it was a it was a series of tweets that got a little bit of attention. But the uh, you know that common approach of doing the most for the most, you know, trying to um, provide the most benefit to the most people in the shortest amount of time, will always wind up putting white people first, right? And for me. Uh, the primary goal of disaster work and emergency management uh, within that should to be make disasters as equitable as possible, which I think for a lot of folks sounds awfully weird. Uh, so I'll say it again. Uh, our first goal should be to make disasters as equitable as possible. Otherwise, I do think that there is a systemic racist approach uh, to that and doing the most for the most, right? And that's a big culture shift for all of us to be saying, well, our primary goal might be to use the resources we have and it won't benefit the most. It won't even benefit close to the most. That's, um, you know, thinking about that with you, about how that might even change the nature of what we call disaster science or emergency management research is really profound mm. because it does force us to think about well, lots of things, obviously how power is constituted, also how the academy is put together, who we write to. I mean, part of this to me is, is structural on the research side. If you put forward a, a, a grant to the National Science Foundation where you want to examine structural racism in the, the most for the most approach in emergency management. Do you think that would get funded? Yeah, I mean, so I was actually on a call uh, and heard an anecdote of, of a particular PI wanting to ensure that there was an anti-racist goal explicitly laid out. Um, 
in their proposal. And there was concern that, that using the language of uh, anti-racism would not review well. I don't know if that's true or not, because it's all us that would be on those panels. Um, but the fact that there is that concern uh, is troubling. And so some of us have to start doing that if we want to achieve those racist, anti-racist goals. Um, and I think we need to be careful not using, you know, general terms like vulnerable groups, racial disparities, because it is hiding that what's most important to ask right now, which is, you know, how does racism finish the question? Right. It, 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 it leaves too much room if we're using these more generic terms. Um, yeah. And I think we just have to start having those conversations. We need to start putting those research questions out and we'll see how the review panels uh, respond. I just want to tie that back to our previous discussion about the dashboard. And <laughs> I know it's kind of putting you on the spot, but but you're up to it, which is if you were going to reimagine how the, those dashboards could work and also move into this kind of anti-racist space, or as you say, getting down to the question, can we really get down to the question? Um, could you see that kind of, of a, how can we begin to talk about that? How can we begin to talk about not letting go of the possibilities of new technology and new findings, but also attacking old perennial problems. I mean, you mentioned earlier in our discussion that there's a statue on campus at Texas A&M that people are worried about. Those histories are there. They're longstanding. Those are old problems. We don't need a data dashboard to tell us that, that Jim Crow was alive and well in Texas. How do we bring those two together in some way? Uh, I'm going to pass the mic, and the, the mic I'll pass it to. Um, <laughs> Good. So there is uh, a field, and there are black designers. So I would pass the mic to folks that are experts in black center design, like the Creative Reaction Lab in St. Louis, who did pop up after uh, Ferguson and think 2014, was it? Uh, you can start to think about that by Googling the Black Design Manifesto. Um, so I am not gonna I'm not gonna wade in on that answer because I am yeah. not the one that should start that. Well, I can I can inspire perhaps some momentum to create that conversation, but I am not gonna facilitate that conversation because there are folks that can facilitate it, and I certainly am not gonna offer answers in that case. But I can pass the mic and and tell folks who are interested who to to contact to get that design process going. That's tremendous. Thank you so much. For that. We're almost up on time. I want to let people know I'm talking with Scott Miles, and we're having a great COVID calls discussion today. And as I knew we would, we've, we've ranged over many, many topics. Um, I want to come back to something about trust. And it does come back also to this issue about boundaries. Um, you know, there's this sort of common lament that, uh, you know, the public doesn't trust science. And I guess this is kind of a meta narrative around climate change to a certain degree, although I know people who study emergency management feel the same that, you know, we have these great findings, can't get them out there. The public doesn't trust us. At the same time, hmm. scientists came to us in February and March and said, stay home. And most people did. Yeah. And many are still doing it. So I, 
I'm a little bit at cross purposes with myself right now and what this moment portends for science and, and thinking about disaster science. And, and I guess I want to ask you about this in your particular role. What can we be thinking about doing right now, again, to enter that space and say, yeah, we have information that you should trust. We're not taking a side per se, but we, we want to enter this space and we want to we want to be science communicators. Are there things that we can be doing right now to, to be doing that more effectively and enter this moment? Um, <laughs> that was a lot. Uh, you know, I think uh, I haven't checked a poll for a, a little bit, but I think uh, both absolutely and relatively trust in science actually hasn't gone down that much. So when I mean relatively uh, specific to the pandemic, when they put uh, compared to other, you know, federal officials, governors, mayors, you know, scientists are, are still polling pretty well, uh, like Pew, and they've just generally done research about or is it uh, the I can't remember the organization when they do general polling. It turns out that the public in general does trust scientists and science fairly well. Um, so I think first is is not to um, kind of over overhype the issue. I think the other is it gets back to the beginning of the conversation is like we have to interact with people as people. I don't think we can be like, hey, I know something really important that you should know. I don't know how that's ever going to work, no matter if you summarize mm -hmm. it in a paragraph or you don't use jargon or what have you. I think there are, you have to, like, in a genuine way, want to, to work with someone. And you might be thinking, well, well how do you work with someone, uh, like, in the media? Well, think about other, <laughs> like professions that literally is what people do i spent a decade like building a relationship with a seattle times reporter so that i could bring stories to her she could talk to me off the record i could talk to her off the record we were working together because we did have common interests like not all of our interests were the same but we found interests that were common and that's right. not that's not easy to do. It takes time. But I think that's where you get success, where it's not just, oh, excuse me, I have something important to say. Please listen to me and trust me. It's like you build the rapport and you're, you're particularly working on something together. You know, it might just be like quick interactions, but you're still trying to achieve uh, a, a mutual goal. So we're up on time. I just want to get one little quick question in here at the end. I don't know how much time you've had to participate in the hazards meeting, but I know you've scanned through the research uh, agenda and things. What are maybe one or two ideas that are in discussion right now, something you've seen in a poster or presentation that's stuck with you right now in terms of what hazards researchers are generating right now this week, 2020, as part well, of the hazards the, workshop? The, the, the first plenary this morning of, of, of hearing indigenous voices and like I think of it as I, I didn't even try to try to articulate what they were talking about this morning, but of, you know, there was like genuine concern of this idea of science being a, a religion, which, yeah, I mean, there's some aspects of that that is, that is not bad, but I think it, it's in the, the power dynamic that is created from that religiosity. And just listening to that conversation 
for us to be intellectually humble and go like, oh, okay, like here is how some communities, like how we can join them, how we can like uh, meet them where they are rather than this one direction. If I can just figure out how to communicate this perfectly, people will listen to me and the world will be better. So, I mean, that, that plenary to me was, it was difficult because they're like everything that got said. I wanted to write it down and I wanted to think about it. So I feel like I missed <laughs> 75% of what they said. But that 25% for me was inspiring. And, and what great thing about it being virtual, it's all being recorded. Uh, so I certainly would recommend people um, watch that plenary. And I'll, I'll, I'll plug my own stuff. So talked a lot about human-centered design. So uh, yep. tomorrow... Uh, the first thing in the breakout sessions, we have a session on doing human-centered design for reducing hazard impacts and um, disaster risk. And then somehow I'm involved in four other panels all relating to do uh, with four. recovery. Yeah. Co-authors, man. No, listen. Uh, young listen, dude, you got to do <laughs> no, you do take the, do the Sunday opening stuff and then that's all. Ne- talk to me next time. With yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of work because you have a lot of people working with you. And I want to remind people that we're talking about the Hazards Workshop, which runs out of the Natural Hazards Center. And you can um, participate in that workshop. Still, you, people can still register and participate. Or afterwards, certainly, they'll be uh, – if you just go to the Hazards uh, Natural Hazards Center, the University of Colorado Boulder website, you can find connections to everything. And Lori Peake, who's the director there, has been a guest a couple times on – on COVID calls. I want to remind people, you've been listening to COVID calls and tomorrow we'll have our second discussion with the Bill Anderson Fund Fellows. And I'm really excited to talk to Nancy Contreras and Antoine Richards tomorrow about racial justice and disaster research. Uh, Scott Miles, every time we talk, I come away like with a million new ideas. Thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.